Mark chapter 10, actually jumping back into Mark chapter 10. You know, I was looking at how many weeks we've spent in Mark chapter 10, and this is going to be week number six. There's just sometimes when you get to a, a chapter of the Bible and there's just so much there, we just don't, we don't get in a hurry at the journey when we're uh, teaching and preaching through a book of the Bible. Um, I, I don't feel the need to constantly be changing things up and have a new sermon series every month and try to entertain you because I know that if I try to fight that battle, I'll lose it every time and it's exhausting. Uh, this is an opportunity to gather and study God's word. So even if we go a verse, one, one verse a week, right, that's worth our time. And so we don't get in a rush. We just go through books of the Bible and, and just prayerfully uh, meditate upon each and every verse. We're going to take the last paragraph of chapter 10 today, so we are going to finish it up. So, so a new chapter next month or next week, uh, but today it's 46 through 52, and it's a particularly special moment, I think, because it's the last miracle that we're going to see in Mark's gospel. And here's what I mean by that: that we will see other miracles, like we'll, see, you know, Jesus he'll he'll wither a, a fig tree. We'll talk about that. We'll, we'll see a centurion soldier becoming a believer. Anytime someone becomes a believer, it's a miracle. It's incredible. Well, obviously, we'll see the resurrection. That's a miracle. But when it comes to a, what the Bible calls a sign, right, a sign or signs and wonders, as far as like a healing miracle, this is the last time we're going to see that in, in Mark's gospel. He's been traveling from the northern portion of Israel known as Galilee to the southern portion, Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where the temple is. He's been working his way down with other people in Israel to celebrate Passover, and so there's one stop left on the way to Jerusalem, and it's Jericho. We all remember Jericho, right? Jericho is, you know, remember the walls of Jericho? If you, if you grew up in Journey Kids, you remember the walls of Jericho, right? I think of Joshua chapter 5, where the Israelite army, or they're wanting to enter the promised land, and there's, there's Jericho and the walls of Jericho, and they march around the walls of Jericho for seven days, and the, after the seventh lap on the seventh day, they blast the trumpets, and they let out a big shout, and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down flat. It says that the wall fell down flat. And, and so that's, that's the Jericho we think of. Well, that Jericho was destroyed back in Joshua chapter 5. So that Jericho's long gone. You got to fast forward about 1400 years from that point on the timeline to get to where Jesus is right now where we're studying in Mark and he's in what we'll call New Jericho. It's actually a mile south of the old Jericho that was destroyed. This is a newer settlement and they they were like, "Hey, this new settlement here it's it's close to where Jericho was. Let's just call it Jericho." <laughs> so so it is, it is the same place, but it's not. But that's where they, they have stopped about 18 miles north of Jerusalem. And uh, I think there's something poetic about that. I mention that because, you know, you think of like, you know, Jesus right here is in Jericho, this place where 1,400 years prior to that, the Israelites were, were ready to fight and, and obtain the, the promised land. And, and then now here Jesus is in that same general area getting ready to enter Jerusalem and, and win our victory through his death. There's just something really beautiful about that, I think. And we got the promise to Messiah and the promised land and showing us the kind of victorious king that he truly is. And it's unlike any earthly king, as we've studied, and that's what we'll see today. But this is when he heals the blind man, Bartimaeus. So let's just pick up 
at verse 46. I'm, I'm practically going to take one verse at a time, sometimes two verses at a time, just to soak in every moment, because this is such a cool moment and such a, an edifying moment, I think, for us to study together. So this is verse 46, under the heading, Jesus Heals Blind Bartimaeus. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So here Jesus is with his disciples, again heading to Jerusalem, passing through Jericho. They're with a great crowd because the closer they get to Jerusalem, the bigger this crowd would grow because people are coming from everywhere to gather at the temple to celebrate the Passover feast, right? And so, you know, it's kind of like this, if, if you go to Florida in July or August, you know how when you're driving to Florida, the closer you get to Florida, you realize the entire Midwest is converging in Florida, right? The closer you get to Florida, the more luggage racks you see, the more pillows you see in the back window of, of kids sleeping, right? Everyone is headed to Florida to go on vacation. And you know, just like when you're heading to Florida on vacation, the, the, that crowd is growing the closer you get, especially the closer you get to somewhere like Orlando, you know. But you need to find that good exit to stop. You don't want the bad exit, like, right? How disappointing is it when you pull over to, to use the potty and you get some, like, jacked-up speedway that was built in the 50s, and you're like, oh, man, how'd I pick this one, right? You need that good exit. Well, Jericho was that good exit, right? Just like all the people were converging on Jerusalem for the Passover feast, the good exit was Jericho. This was a great place to stop. It was literally like this beautiful oasis of palm trees in the middle of the desert, randomly. So as you're, as you're traveling through the desert and things like that, I mean, you get to like this beautiful landscape. That's Jericho. Everyone coming from the north would have stopped at Jericho with the crowd. And so it's likely that uh, this crowd, and Jesus and his disciples, for example, it's likely they aren't just like passing through for a a potty break. They would have stayed there for a day or two, possibly, and, and interact and gone in and out of Jer Jericho. And Jesus would have likely spent a couple of days preaching and teaching here uh, before he got back on the road and, and went the last 18, 19 miles to Jerusalem. But this is a high traffic area, a hot spot for panhandlers, for beggars. And so it's no wonder this is where he, he comes into contact with a, a beggar named Bartimaeus. You know, when it comes to like the panhandlers and things like where I grew up in southern Indiana, I, I don't think there was even a single time where I ever saw a panhandler. It just did not exist in southern Indiana where I grew up. I, I did not experience that or see that in any way, shape, or form. When we moved here, though, it's, it's kind of routine around here. And for those of you that grow up here, you're, like, you're nodding, yeah, it's, 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 an, it's routine. You go to Parksburg or even here in Marietta, and you'll see the, the regular spots where people, panhandlers, will... Uh, try to uh, ask for money and things like that. But I, I really feel like even that is fairly different than what we are reading about in the Bible right here when we consider this man's uh, lot in life. I mean, the, the panhandlers and the beggars and things, there's programs and there's, there's government aid and things like, things like that. I mean, there's, there's uh, assistance that exists where we, where we live, even where this is more common. I, I feel like, though, the, the first time I was really exposed to a beggar, in, in, the, in the biblical sense that we're, we're studying today, going to Honduras for over a decade, 
exposed me to a tremendous amount of people who, who would have lived a life like this. And there's one man in particular that just sticks out like a sore thumb. You know, every summer in July, we would take a team. And many of you remember this guy that went with me to Honduras. Several of you went to Honduras with me. And just before, you know, we'd land in San Pedro Sula, and we would drive through the countryside to get to the orphanage that we would stay at each summer. And there was this one small village where this uh, man who was wheelchair-bound would sit on the side of the road next to a speed bump. And if you were with me, you remember, you get close to that speed bump and you slow down, and, and this guy would be in the same spot each and every year. He clearly did not have the ability to move himself in this wheelchair, and so he was dependent upon friends or family pushing him out next to the speed bump where people would naturally slow down to get any spare change that they would offer him. And I just couldn't help but think about that guy every year. It would be one of the first things that would catch your eye when we would begin our mission trips every summer. And I would just think like, man, you know, I, I would leave that week and I would go back home. And I would get to have all of these different activities take place in my life. All, all of these different experiences, and, and w whether it be vacations or visiting family or Christmas celebrations or, you know, just accomplishments and goals and things that we, we take for granted in our everyday life. All of the different things we get to do all year long. And then every year I would come back to that same spot and that man would be in the same exact place each and every time, and I'm thinking all of these different things that I've done in the past year, all of these different places I've gone to, that man has been right there. If he's still alive, that's where he's at right now. You know, eventually, we would take supplies down there, and some of the teams, as, long, as well as ours, we, we've got electric wheelchairs down there, and, and we, we took like what do you call that, the jazzy? You remember those things, like the electric wheelchairs and things? We, we took one down there, and I don't know if it was exactly the one we brought, but one of, the, one of those electric wheelchairs got to this guy. And, and for the final three years, I think I was in Honduras, when we would get to that same speed bump, I would look for that guy to see, like, does he still have the wheelchair? Because, I mean, he, would ha he had a smile from ear to ear with that wheelchair and he, he could get himself around and he would zoom up and down the street and now when you would get close to that speed bump he would come like driving up next to you smiling and, and he had this uh, this net that was duct taped to the arm of his of his wheelchair and he would take that net along the side of the car as you slowed down for the speed bump so that you could put something in there and we you know on one hand, I was like so thrilled for that man to be able to move around on his own, and he looked like he was so happy, and you could just see the way he interacted with everyone. He was almost like, ha instead of just staring at the ground, he was like having conversations and talking to people and interacting with them and, and, and giving little kids rides on his wheelchair. I saw, that, I saw him do that even one day, and I was just like, wow, that's so amazing, but on, on the other hand, I felt like, oh man, isn't that so, like, pitiful in a sense like that like he lived his whole life in this like maybe a you know half half a mile radius and and he was he was just so appreciative and so thankful for for that life change in his life just such a little change a little change something that we able to, we were able to get a hold of for free something somebody was just getting rid of and it just changed like it seemingly changed his whole outlook on life it was so humbling it's so humbling to go back and see that man and just consider his way of life, and you think like, well, how, how, could I, how could I ever complain about anything? But yet we do. How could I complain about anything that doesn't go my way? Any hardship that I may experience? I'm a spoiled brat. 
That would be so convicting every time I would see this man full of joy with his electric wheelchair and, and, and asking for donations. And, but, you know, I, I think that was more like kind of what the life would have been like for Bartimaeus. He was blind and he was totally dependent upon whatever human being managed to just come near that one little speck of the earth. Just like that man in, in Honduras, he, he, he lived right there and he was totally dependent on whoever passed by that speed bump. That's how he survived. Well, in Mark's account, we're given this man's name, Bartimaeus. Now, in, in Matthew's account, when you're reading, again, we call it the gospel parallels, right? Sometimes these moments exist in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we can compare notes and look and get all the details. And in Matthew's account, there's two. A lot of times in miracles, there are two people being healed. That's for a, a, another reason that we studied when we were in Matthew. But here there's one, and when we're given his name. He, Mark wants to focus not on both of them, but just on one of the two of them. It's this, this is Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Now, there's something redundant there uh, if, we were, if, we, if we take a closer look at the text. So anytime you see Bar before a name, that means son of. So remember when Peter, we're given Peter's name, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. So that, that word bar, that just means son of. You maybe think of a bar mitzvah, like when, right, that Jewish party when a boy comes of age and he can participate in all of the Jewish rituals. That bar mitzvah means son of the covenant or son of the commandments. And so this is bar Timaeus, son of Timaeus. You see the redundancy there? It would be like me naming my son son of Cody and then referring to him as son of Cody. This is son of Cody. Son of Cody. <laughs> and the reason it's redundant is because you got to remember we're reading this in English. And so Bartimaeus was this man's name, his Hebrew name. And Mark is writing in Greek. And so he translates this Hebrew name to his Greek readers. This is Bartimaeus. It means son of Timaeus. But isn't it fascinating that this man's name is given to us. Think back of all of the people that are healed by Jesus. How many times are we given their name? Well, a very small amount. You think of guys like Lazarus, and then there's like Bartimaeus. And I struggle to think beyond that off the top of my head because I didn't look <laughs> to write this down in my notes. But we're given his name likely because in the early church, remember Mark's gospel circulated first? It's likely people know him. This is Bartimaeus. He's the son of Tim. You know Tim, right? This is his boy. This is Bartimaeus who spent his whole life on the side of the road in Jericho, never moving, never going anywhere, doing anything, totally dependent upon who would pass through Jericho on their way to Passover and things like that. This is Bartimaeus. It's likely that he went on to become a leader in the early church, because spoiler alert, he gets healed and he ends up following Jesus. It's likely he became a leader in the early church, and, and people knew him. They learned from him. They could go talk to him. And so Mark, when he's writing his gospel, he's saying, it, it, rather than just say, yeah, there was two guys uh, healed in Jericho, he's like, well, Bartimaeus was healed in Jericho. He was a blind beggar, and Jesus healed him. You can go talk to him. This is Bartimaeus. And so we speculate these things, but it's, th those are very plausible things to consider. But this is Bartimaeus from Jericho, and here's the thing about him, though. He, he is blind, but, but he's not dumb. 
he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. He's heard the rumors. He's heard about the miracles, the signs, and wonders. And he is going to make the most of his opportunity as he hears Jesus is approaching. He's about ready to come through my little speck of the earth. i got to make the most of this. Here's what he says in verse 47. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, that's the first time he's been addressed like that in Mark's gospel. Son of David, here the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus, is referring to Jesus as the son of David. Son of David, that, that, that was a blatant, a blatant declaration that Jesus, he believed Jesus was the Messiah. Because every Jew during this time would have understood that this Messiah would be a descendant of King David. Now, you, so when you read Luke's gospel or Matthew's gospel, right, you got these, these big, uh, you know, family trees written out at the beginning. And like, here's this person, this person, this person, this person, and then here's Jesus, because they're connecting Jesus to the lineage of David, but Mark doesn't do that in his gospel, but we have this declaration, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This man's saying, everybody else has heard the whispers and some are wondering if you're the Messiah. Some say you are, some say you aren't, but let it be known, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, I am certain you are this Messiah we have anticipated all this time. I believe it. Other people wonder. I believe it. You are the Messiah. So Messiah, have mercy on me. He's shouting as loud as he can because he truly believes that Jesus is this Messiah. And this is his one opportunity to get his attention. And here's what people do around him when he does this. Look at verse 48. And many rebuked him telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so they try to shoo him away. Doesn't this remind you of what happened early in this very, earlier in this very same chapter? Do you remember when families are bringing their children to Jesus, as would have been customary to bring your child to a, the, the traveling rabbi to be blessed by him. Well, this is Jesus. We need to bring our children to be blessed by Jesus. And do you remember what happened when all these families and children started gathering around Jesus? Get, get out of here. He's not got time for you. The, the disciples, just like in this moment, they were shooing the children away in that, pre, in that prior moment in, earlier in chapter 10. Get away Right? This is Jesus, the king, like this Messiah. He ain't got time for you. He ain't got time for you. But what we, what we remember, what we learned about that moment is the whole point of those children coming to Jesus and Jesus saying, no, let them come to me. The whole point of that is saying that's how everyone enters the kingdom of God. Enter like children. You don't need credentials. They didn't understand that. They think if you're going to hang out with the king and be part of the kingdom, you better be somebody. And so they had to learn this over and over, just like you and I have to learn it over and over. We all think we had to be somebody and do something special to be loved by God. But that's not how this kingdom works. That's not, that's not who this king is. He says, come to me like children. Become like children. You don't need your resume, your credentials. You need to be nobodies. You want to be loved by God? You don't need to be somebody. You need to be a nobody. And that just doesn't compute with us. We have to hear that over and over or we just will not believe it. 
Scripture has to correct that in our brains over and over, or we will reject it. Something else that we learn in this moment, I think, is to be persistent, right? People tried to shut him down, but he knew he needed Jesus. They tried to silence him, gesture to him that he wasn't worthy, and he embraces this unworthiness in how he addresses Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, have mercy on me. He cried out all the more, son of, son of David, have mercy on me. I don't deserve to hang out with you. He's acknowledging it. I am unworthy. You know, is that, is that what you do? Is that, is that what you do? I, you know, it, I, I tell you every week, like, if, if you want to be convicted when we study scripture together, then pray that you'll be convicted. Think about scripture in a way that would be convicting Look inwardly, reflect. Is that what you do? Like when the world shuts us down and tries to silence us or snuff out our faith, how do you combat that? That's a great thing to think about right right now. How do you combat that? You know, like when this world makes you feel like a fraud and you start to believe it, what do you do in that moment? Do you cry out for mercy? Right? When, when, When your attempts at faith are, are deemed unworthy by those around you? Do, you? do you kind of buy into that? You know, they are unworthy. Or do you cry out for mercy? You know, when the world shushes your Christian faith with busyness, or with entertainment, all these distractions and things like that, you feel like gunned in every way. What do you do? Do you just give in? Or do you cry out to God, Lord, have mercy on me. I am so unworthy. Have mercy. Give me something I don't deserve. You know, if you cried out for mercy, what do you think Jesus, how do you think Jesus would respond to you? Like when you go to God in prayer and you consider your life and you say, Lord, please show me mercy, do you believe that he will? And why would you believe that? You know, again, asking for mercy is asking for what you don't deserve. Give me what I don't deserve. This is a posture we're meant to see so that we would live in it. Let's keep going through uh, 49 through 50 here. It says, and Jesus stopped. This is how Jesus responds to this humility. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. This is so important to, to, to stop and reflect on. We know through scripture that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This man is like, show me mercy. Give me what I don't deserve, Lord. I don't deserve this. Please show me mercy. That's humility. God gives grace to the humble. And it stops Jesus in his tracks. He hears that desperation and that humility that we're supposed to live in. And it stops him. He's responsive to that because God is responsive to that. And again, we, just ha- we have to hear that over and over or we just won't, will not believe it. If we don't routinely go back to Scripture and think about that, we'll say it can't be that way because we are inclined to believe that it's that good performance that'll capture God's attention and he'll give me favor. Look, look what I did. Isn't this nice? We think we need to do that or, or, or posture ourselves next to our good deeds, like trophies, and think that God will be proud of us in a way that he'll give favor to us. It's, it's a childish 
mentality. I mean, it's like our kids, right? When your kids come home and they have the A marked real big on their quiz, they get it out of the backpack immediately. Boom, A, check it out, Dad, I got an A. But when they get that C or D or F in there, that's buried. You got to go look for those. Those are buried in the bottom of the backpack if they even make it home, right? I mean, we, we live in that mentality. We think that God is that way because that is the way we are, right? We, we project ourselves onto God, and, and then we view him wrongfully. And so this blind man, he, he bypasses that performance-based mentality. He says, I, I got nothing to offer you. I, I have nothing. I literally have nothing. I sit in this little speck of the earth. I need mercy. Or show me mercy. Those around him try to quiet him down. He didn't have time for you. He doesn't have time for somebody like you. And Jesus said, no, I especially have time for him. I especially have time for the humble. So do you approach God with that humility? You know, it's oftentimes we don't, right? I mean, you know, like when, like when we, we take our requests to God over and over and and we, we don't get those prayers answered, at least not in the way that we want or in the time that we want. What do we do? We get frustrated. Are you listening, God? You can fix this. Are you doing anything about this? What's the point of praying? I'm not getting what I want. Here's how you know if you're approaching God with pride or with humility. When you take a request to God, do you feel like, which one of those requests do you feel like you're owed? And why would you be owed that? That's a great question to ask yourself. When you take those requests to God, no matter what it is, are you owed that? Or are you asking for mercy? So the, the, when we get frustrated, we're living in a posture that says, you owe me this, come on, you owe me this. But when we live in a posture of humility, we're just asking for mercy. And it's such a change, uh, uh, such a, a mindset shift. Right? This blind man is calling out for mercy, and we are meant to see that so that we would be like that. And Jesus responds to that. He called the man. He responds to, to it. And, and here's what he says to Bartimaeus. Look at the first part of 51. Really think about where you've heard this before. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, when we read that, the first thing we think to think about what do you want me to do for you? We think, well, isn't it obvious, Jesus? He's blind. What do you think the blind guy wants? You heal people, right? Because, again, <laughs> we're just so naturally prideful. Isn't this obvious? We are meant to see that here because we've already seen it in chapter 10. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus just asked that same question, not to the blind man. He just asked that same question to James and John earlier in verse 36, earlier in the chapter. Do you remember what happened then? James and John went up to Jesus, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. We have this request. And we remember they were posturing themselves to be like next in line in authority, and they want to, they want to be second and third. When, when Jesus gets his glory, they want to have the second most amount of glory and the third most amount of glory. So they're, they're getting ready to posture themselves in a prideful way before Jesus. Teacher, do it. we want you to do whatever we ask of you, and this is what Jesus says to them. What do you want me to do for you? And so we get to see James and John respond to that, and we get to see the blind man respond to that. And then we get to consider ourselves and see, well, which posture do I make requests to God? 
Of course, we know James and John, they said, grant us to sit at your right hand and your left hand in glory. Oh, is that all? They're not exactly asking for mercy, right? They're not exactly asking for their daily bread, just give me what I need, right? They're asking, hey, when you get all that glory, you're going to get a ton of it. We want almost as much as you. Not as much as you, of course, but like the next amount, the next most. So what Bartimaeus, but what, what does Bartimaeus say? What does he ask for when Jesus says, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? He has the same opportunity, the same question. And here's what he says. He says, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. This is more of a daily bread posture. Give us this day our daily bread. Give me what I need. You see, this question that Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? It exposed the pride and manipulation of James and John. But when this question is asked to Bartimaeus, it, exp it, it, it exposes his humility and his faith. I mean, even, even the way that Bartimaeus addresses Jesus is different than James and John. Now, we can't see that because we're reading it in English. And so this is why I do the homework all week, so I can share the results with you, right? I'm doing the homework for you. When you read and study and, and what's happening here, you see that James and John say, teacher, give us whatever we ask for you, right? But when the blind man, Bartimaeus, says, rabbi, let me recover my sight, he's using a different word. This is not rabbi, it's rabboni. Rabboni, not rabbi, rabboni. It's a more, and so... If you're reading in the King James Version right now, my ESV, it lets me down in this moment. Like, I, you, I, I don't try to, like, hate on the ESV. I love the ESV, but it, it doesn't get it right in this time. King James gets it right. It says, Lord. If you're reading the New King James or the NASB, it doesn't even use an English word at all. It puts the original Hebrew word in there, Rabboni, Rabboni. I don't know how you say it. Let me recover my sight. And it means Lord, Master. It's not just teacher. Whenever the disciples were talking to Jesus earlier in the chapter and they refer to him as rabbi, they don't even use the word rabbi. They use didaskalos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right either, but that's another word for teacher. It's kind of under rabbi even. Like, but, but Bartimaeus, he goes right up the ladder to the, the, the most powerful word he can use. Lord, Master. Let me recover my sight. Because remember, he knows Jesus is this Messiah. He knows he is his Lord. So again, we are being taught through this beggar how to be a beggar. We're supposed to live in this posture. You know, the, one of the verses that came to mind uh, comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I just, I, I love how convicting this verse is. This is in 5.2. Remember when it says, be not rash with your words, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. When you, when you study how James and John had this opportunity with Jesus in chapter 10, man, they were rambling on. Their words were many. They were just, they just kept going and going, wanting more and more and more. And then you have this beggar in, in humility, just letting his words be few and just honoring God. He knew who he was. He knew who Jesus was. He knew the difference. He knew where he stood before him. Have mercy on me. Give me what I don't deserve. You don't owe me a single thing. I'm just asking for mercy. You are Rabboni. You are my Lord, my master. Let me recover my sight. Just give me this day, this daily bread. 
And Jesus' response in 52 says this, and, when, and Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So today's message, today's text that we're studying encourages us to follow Jesus like the beggar. Follow Jesus in a posture of humility. He doesn't owe us anything. Follow him in a heart that would cry out for mercy. We're reminded of this, that we're empowered and able to do this through his gospel. And that's why we come back to communion, to remember we don't need the credentials in the resume. Lord, show me mercy and give me your righteousness. When we take that bread, we remember it's through faith that he imputes his righteousness to us. He gives us what we don't deserve, his righteousness. He gives us what we don't deserve, and he atones for every single one of our sins. All our debt is paid. He has paid our ransom, and we are free in Christ. So we take that juice to remember that we don't make up for our sins. He has atoned for our sins. He's given us what we don't deserve. Let's take that posture of humility into communion this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this moment, this small little paragraph describing to us this moment in time in which you interacted with the beggar Bartimaeus. It's so convicting, Lord, and we pray that that conviction would be acted upon today. Lord, that we could come to you like children, that we could come to you asking for mercy and a posture of humility, and that we would be changed by that. Lord, that we would even begin to live like that and show mercy to those around us, giving them what they don't deserve. It's so often, Lord, that when we feel like we're wronged or sinned against, Lord, we want to return an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We want to get even. We want to get more than even. But Lord, we can be merciful because you were merciful to us. We can give them what they don't deserve because, Lord, you've given us what we don't deserve. How could we, of all people on this planet Earth, how could your people ever refuse mercy to somebody? Lord, change us, and, and Lord, I pray that we would dwell upon these things as we, as we make much of you and think about what you've done for us in the gospel today. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Thank you.